Hello there, everybody, and welcome to a very, 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 no reason for free there, special edition of the Talking City podcast, brought to you by the Manchester Evening News. My name is Dan Murphy, and wearing fittingly sky blue is Mr. Joe Bray. Joe, how's it going? Not too bad, thanks. I've had to close the window because it's so hot, but it's very noisy outside, so if you, if you see me getting warmer and warmer, that is uh, that is what's happening, but uh, no, it's, uh, it's all positive from a City perspective at the moment, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm in the same boat. I am selflessly not putting on my fan um, yep. to, for the sanctity of the audio, but I'm already regretting that decision. But I suppose someone who's actually feeling cool compared to the rest of us as he's just been spending the other weekend over in Istanbul is Mr. Simon Rakowski. Simon, how are you? Uh, I am very tired, as the majority <laughs> of City fans who are in Istanbul will be. Although, do you know what? It was hotter over here. Oh well, oh well, well that's the one, the one advantage we had over you then, I suppose. But yes, um, loads to talk about, loads to uh, congratulate, celebrate, analyse, and go into details on. But where else to start? But of course, Saturday's Champions League final, Manchester City won Inter nil. So you were there, you had all the experiences. So when we go to you first, it was. A nervy game, an edgy game. I thought actually still quite an entertaining game, especially at the end. But in the end, even though it wasn't, as I say, it was a heart in mouth moments towards the end of the city, city got the job done. Yeah, how many times can we say in Europe that City have looked so good and played so good and they've just gone out um, in cruel circumstances? Whereas this time they really didn't play well, um, sort of watching it. Watching the start, you think, oh, they're a bit nervous. Oh, this is a bit odd. Oh, we're not. This isn't the team we've seen this season. And then as time goes on and that 10 minutes turn to 20 and 30 and 45 and 60 and you're like, what on earth has happened to this football team? Um, but they got the job done. Like you say, one move was all it took. Um, I should say the defending was very good throughout. Um, you know, Diaz, Ake, Akanji and belatedly Edison were all, all terrific. Um, which was why, even though the team wasn't performing, um, they, they they were still level. Um, but yeah, it was. Um, it, it felt like nerves got to the team, the fans, the whole. They had all this build up where it was like this. This has to be it. And then, um, as time went on, you start to think, Oh God, what if it isn't it? And what would all that mean for for everyone? Mm-hmm. I think nerves certainly played the part. I think most of the players admitted it as much in the post-match interviews. <laughs> there was about 18 of them, so it's hard to kind of keep track. But I'm pretty sure Kyle Walker definitely did, and maybe Gundogan um, all kind of said, like, the nerves obviously played a part. It's going to do in a final. And, the, and I think the common theme was they all knew it was going to be difficult. A few players admitted they didn't play well. I think Grealish said he played dead, was the description he went with. And, yeah, no one... But I think who was it who said it was fight? You know, Harland. It was of course. It doesn't matter how you play in the final. It doesn't matter who's good, who's bad. It just matters um, up getting over the line, Joe. But I think you know we talked about the nerves and how they're obviously going to get to anyone in that sort of scenario, especially when you know you're trying to avenge the heartbreak from two years ago. But you know we didn't quite get the um, the experience of what a stif- you know stif- stifling atmosphere it was um, over in Istanbul in that you know sweltering stadium and. I think, before we go any further, Inter deserve a lot of credit because their game plan almost worked to absolute perfection. You know, a, a, a Lukaku header goes in, a Lukaku doesn't block his own teammate's shot, as we'll get on to. <laughs> and, and Inter might well be standing here European champions instead. And they, they played the right game, but City just had 
the in the end they had the nerve to get through it. I think, which is maybe something as Simon said there, maybe something they have lacked in recent years. That 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 edge, that steel, just to get them over the line, the the, the final piece. Well, Guardiola said he said it, didn't he? When when they beat Real Madrid so so comfortably, he knew that an Italian team in the final wouldn't present a particularly open game. I think Diaz and De Bruyne said it the day before the game, so did Guardiola. They basically said it's not going to be an open game, it's not going to be that sort of intriguing to watch for the neutral. But I think City did enough. Yes, they they were below the best of the very high standards that they have set for themselves. But as we've touched on, the the defence, Guardiola made a big call in not selecting Walker. He selected four centre-backs, moved John Stones into the middle. It all worked out well because tactically... Yes, Inter had a lot of the the sort of the ball in the first half. I think you've you've, you've got to say, I, I think they were better with the ball when they had it, but they didn't really do much with it. They didn't create many chances. They didn't test Edison that much, and it was actually City who had the the two better chances of of that first half when we were all sat here thinking. City have been really off it here, but actually they've had the better chances and not let any chances on goal. And I think that's where City have really developed in in recent years for example in the Bernabeu when Real Madrid are on top City stand firm they don't concede a second goal then they get an equaliser in the final they stand firm they don't concede a goal they put they give themselves that position to to score a goal in the second half and you, you think back to 2021 that final it was quite a similar game where City didn't really turn up as they should have done the, the opposition were maybe a little bit limited but did play well and played the occasion a little bit better on that day Chelsea got the got the goal, held out for the win on this day. Inter didn't get the goal and City were then able to go and get it themselves. So I think that's just proof over the last couple of years of how City have really in in sort of mindset and in the quality of the defenders that they've got. They are they're just a better team. Uh, they, they can have all the attacking uh, versatility and, and wonderful players in the world. But it's I think it was a bit a bit of a proof of that cliche of defence wins your titles because mm. City have needed it over the last, especially in the FA Cup final as well. Uh, you know, City weren't as good as they have been. I think a long, long season's caught up on them a little bit, but mm. they've still got over the line and got two very big trophies and, and now they're trouble winners and no one's going to remember how they played. They're just going to remember Ilkay Gundogan lifting that cup. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think what Inter did quite well, actually, I, I agree that they didn't create much apart from that kind of Literally until City scored and then DeMarco hit the bar and then the chances started flowing. But yeah, well, I thought they did exactly in the first half. Well, up until like the 60th minute or so, mm-hmm. well, I thought Inter did quite well. Side was like they, it wasn't just a case of them like really sitting back and just waiting for City to kill them. They kind of went. They were on a bit of the front foot. I thought they pressed the full backs while the wing backs really high and Dumfries and DeMarco and Barella, who's a great player. They were, they were kind of just really getting amongst City, trying to not. I wouldn't say rough them up. It wasn't quite like that, but it was making their presence felt and trying to stifle them and put them off the game. And that worked quite well. And it was, you know, it, De, Bruyne, De Bruyne's injury obviously had nothing to do with that. He, sadly, as Joe says, he kind of, his fighting through the pain barrier with a um, damaged hamstring for the last two months finally caught up with him. But I think the introduction of Foden, who was probably one of the few players who didn't seem to have the occasion get to him quite as much and was just brought that energy into, the, you know, maybe we'll talk about this during the summer, but kind of pointedly played in the middle for the first time in months and, and was really excellent, brought that maybe a bit more composure, a bit more energy and then eventually, as you say, City kind of started taking a bit more control in that second half and while Inter, say, I thought Lautaro Martinez dissipated a little bit, didn't really show up on the biggest stage and when you've got, you know, 37-year-old Edin Dzeko, you, you're not, you're not going to um, create the most chances and that's probably what Inter will be kind of ruined now. They, like, they had the 
the ball. They had they knocked City off their game enough to win it. They just didn't create enough when the scores were level. Because you get the impression that if Inter had gone ahead there, it was the really sort of scenario where City might not have come back from it. Yeah, it's kind of ironic that Foden plays out wide rather than in the middle because he's not trusted yet to bring that control and tempo. And yet he came on in the final and brought control and tempo that that they hadn't had. Um, yeah, Inter were just kind of very good at pressuring City's midfield and defence on the ball um, and found a City team who were just spooked. I mean, even... I, I can't remember the exact timings. I haven't watched it um, back, but there must only be a few minutes between um, City's goal and before that Manu Akanji just completely ignoring a Bernardo Silva back pass and Martinez <laughs> going in on goal. It was only Edison saving it that kind of stopped Inter getting 1-0. And if Inter had scored at that point, you all would have said, well, that was deserved. Um, so kind of right up to City scoring, they were still playing really badly. Um, and then even after the goal, um, you know, Inter had lots of chances to, to score from really, really bad defending. Um, as much as you know, I've just said how good the defense were, but the the whole team basically it was just it was it was weird. Like the crowd tried to get them going, and then even the crowd kind of started getting a bit nervous, and were like, they're not they're not responding. Guardiola tried to get them going. You know that that, that was when um, the Martinez chance was when Guardiola was just on all fours, um, just like desperately looking at the play, trying to trying to do something. So you know, not to go too overboard but there really weren't like many redeeming features from from the performance over the whole 90 minutes i, I was doing ratings i was about to give rodri a four and then he <laughs> scores and you're like well what what do you give him because he's still been rubbish but he has yeah. scored the champions league winner he, he, he said so himself he said and i don't know if you've seen any of the post-match interviews but um, he said literally on bt sport that he was a s dot bleep like yeah, he himself yeah. admitted it as a lot and, of the others did like he got man of the match in the stadium and everyone was just like, what has this, has this happened? Like stones was amazing. Stones was man of the match, um, by a country mile, I thought, but, but other than stones and then Edison's saves at the end, like the, there was a lot of, um, a lot of rubbish in there. There absolutely was, but let's kind of talk about that positive. And that of course, Joe is John stones. And it wasn't even like he was playing the role exactly like we've talked about so much in recent weeks he was playing even further up instead of it being kind of the center back to the more defensive midfield position it was right back to kind of as he described it a number eight position kind of getting on the ball much more going further up the pitch and he was absolutely amazing what has happened like from like it's not it's easy to kind of forget that maybe two years ago or so like it looked likely that stones might leave he was kind of struggling with injuries again and confidence and uh you know, Diaz and Laporte were excellent. There was no getting past them. Ake had come in, like potential replacement. And now all of a sudden, he's like England's best midfielder, apart from Jude Bellingham. I, I feel sorry for Gareth Southgate because England's complete lack of centre-backs means there's absolutely no chance he can do the same same with England, I imagine. But it's almost like it's a shame that we can't have him in the midfield um, for the free lines because it was on the biggest stage, and I think he did the same against Madrid, against the likes of Modric and Cruz, he bossed it, but to do it in the Champions League final, when everyone around around him was kind of losing their heads a little bit, he was the one for the full 90 minutes to just keep calm, keep composed, and do his job to an absolute tee. I think I saw a stat that in a Champions League final, only Lionel Messi in the, in the last 10 or 15 years has, created, has completed more dribbles 
in a Champions League final than John Stones did the other day, which is, I mean, it's one of them, if you said at the start of the season, that Stones would be named in the Champions League team of the season as an out-and-out midfielder. He's bossed, bossed the midfielder in two games against Bayern, Real Madrid and, and Inter Milan in the final. You, you just wouldn't have lead at all, but that, that's the, the nature of this City side at the moment. He's, I mean, Guardiola's put four centre-backs in his team. Uh, in his in, in his defence in a Champions League final and nobody said a word and everyone said yeah that's that's the right decision unthinkable at, at the start of the season but I think Stones' sort of uh, evolution into that role it's probably been coming for longer than we expect but there's never really been the time to do it but coupled with some very very good form at centre-back and then the whole system has evolved this year maybe sparked by Rico Lewis, but the, the sort of need to have someone pushing forward into midfield from from defence. Stones has done it a couple of times and then he's run with it and he's he's not just played well, he's played well against very, very good sides and very, very good midfielders and it's it's exciting to see where he can go with that this year because it feels like he's only been doing that for a couple of months now. Mm. If, if he gets a whole season of doing that next season, it could completely transform City's midfield and yeah we don't know who's going to be in that City midfield if, if there's going to be departures or, or or anything like that or incomings but it looks like that's going to be Stones's future now and especially with so many defenders uh, also in the squad it's it, yeah it's it's remarkable and Ayako I, I think he was man of the match and just one more point on City's overall performance it's it's refreshing isn't it from a City point of view that they play badly and win most of the time when City aren't at it, they, they slip up and, and allow shots on, on goal and, and lose, in it, especially in the Champions League. But they've done it this year. They've, they've held firm and they've, they're not going to complain at all that they've played badly and, and got away with it and won, won the trophy. Yeah, it's the cliched sign of champions. <laughs> and, you know, there are bigger champions on the planet right now than City. But, Si, like, how much did... You know, it, feels, it really feels like Stones... His kind of role was the changing point in City's season almost. As Joe says, Lewis tried it, Bernardo tried it, but while those players did all right themselves, um, kind of individually, it never seemed to really click um, the, the kind of the new system Pep was going for until Stones took up the mantle himself. And it, you know, since I don't know exactly the first game that happened, but it feels from you know top of my head, it does feel kind of like when City's big winning run started in mid-February, and. How much did his kind of tactic of putting him at right back this time against Inter work? Given Inter, you know, Inter played with two strikers. It's it's been a way to deal damage to City in the past. You know, Brentford famously this past season two strikers beat City twice. I know the last game of the season didn't count for much, but two strikers has posed a problem for City in the past, and it was the one change we, you know, the one unexpected change Guardiola made was that Stones to right back ploy, and but it it did eventually you know pay off even if City weren't at the races for the most of the match. Yeah, I think if he's kind of going to be moving forward, it's always more comfortable to go forward from full-back than, than centre-back. I know Stones is a centre-back, but if, if you're organising a defence, you would rather have the middle as solid rather than um, your wings. And obviously with interplaying two strikers, it, you sort of needed two centre-backs to cover um, those strikers. But I, I genuinely think you could have just kind of started stones at goalkeeper and he still would have covered every <laughs> every blade of the grass. It's quite alarming to me when I watch John Stones because I think I I don't know how to describe what he's doing. And it, it's like, do you need to have sort of played the game to to, to realise that? But no, it, it's like nobody can quite put the finger on what he's doing. They just know it's like beyond all levels of 
kind of what we've seen before of what should be happening. And this is a player that remains a really good defender, but has been, you know, has been a very good defender for years. There shouldn't be anything new that we're seeing. Um, and yet in these last few months, he's just decided to, like Joe said, best a Bayern midfield, best a Real midfield, probably one of the best midfields in the world. And then, you know, be the the best, you know, he's bossed a Champions League final. How many players can say that in, in their lives? Um, not, not very many. And um, it, it, it is frightening how, how good he is and how, how much impact he's made in such a short space of time. Yeah, exactly. That's that. I mean, that's what's the stunning thing. Like, it almost feels like Stones is like part of the furniture as a midfielder. And I, I can't get the stats up um, so quickly, but it's certainly not been. It certainly wasn't before twenty twenty three when he was playing in that role. It's been a few months, four, five months tops when he's been doing it, and yet it just feels so, just so kind of part runner for the part of the furniture now. As I say, so normal. But you know, the other man, the other player who's sitting kind of oh. Their final win to Joe was Edison. Now, it maybe the one from Lukaku, the save that had us all gasping because it just had to be a certain goal, wasn't quite as amazing as it looked. As given, poor, poor, ill-fated Romelu Lukaku did everything right, headed it down, but sadly headed it straight at Edison who needed it away. But then he saves, as I mentioned, he saved earlier on from Martinez just before the winning goal, and then he saved in the basically the last moment of the game from the corner, leaping to his left, and you know confident catches. You know, it, it, you wrote earlier this year about how City fans were kind of questioning him, but the, I don't think there's any of that now. Yeah, well, the, the criticism was that he didn't turn up in the big games and he didn't make those big saves. It, that, that that debate shouldn't have been a debate to begin with, but it's it's over now. He's he, he's he has won the Champions League for City just as much as as Rodri has, and uh, yeah, he he stood firm for for the Lukaku chance and kept his head when. He maybe hasn't done in the past. Um, the Martinez chance, sorry, the, the Lukaku one. Yes, Lukaku is the one to blame for that. But Edison's moving across that goal very quickly, and you know I don't think every keeper would save that. And I think he deserves probably more credit than he's getting. And and the one in the final minute, there's a, a video from behind the goal, and it shows that the the header I think from Gozens is going in that far corner, which would have been the last kick of the game, sent it to extra time. We've seen City in that situation. They had a lot of defenders on. Would they have been able to recover in the in, in extra time? Who knows? But, you know, Edison punches that away and I think that's as again as big a moment as, as any other in, in that final. And uh, yeah, it was it was telling that a couple of players, instead of running to the fans, ran straight to, to Edison especially obviously Scott Carson and Stefan Ortega from the bench but I think Nathan Ake gave him a massive hug because he knew that that was that last that last kick last punch save you say was uh, was as big as Rodri's goal Absolutely. there was that moment as well wasn't there like 92nd minute I think it was injury time when the mm-hmm. high ball goes in from Inter and Edison jumps higher than everyone else catches the ball with his hands and falls to the floor yeah. holding it and you're like, that is like mm. goalkeeping 101 that every fan what every fan <laughs> and teammate wants to see. The goalkeeper coming for a ball, commanding the box. So far out as well. Yeah, that was even and, more impressive. And then you know he's got it under control. You know he can take as long as he wants to settle everyone and get the game going again. And, you know, that those are things that Edison, as much as I think he got a lot of unfair criticism, those are the, the things that he maybe wasn't doing before. Um, but to do it in the biggest game of his and the club's 
lifetime is mm. uh, the mark of a phenomenal goalkeeper. D- did you think it was in the Lukaku header? Do you know what? It's it's all a blur. It's such <laughs> a, a, I, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was one of those. I, I think Joe kind of summed it up, or or you both have. It's one of those where it's like, what a save! And then you look at it and you go, oh, it's it actually it is kind of straight at him. And then you go, do you know what? It, it his legs could have gone anywhere. It could have gone mm. through his legs. It could have hit one and cannoned in. Like his leg has to be exactly there. And maybe there's a bit of luck involved. But his technique and his decision making has got him to that point, so he deserves that look. And also, yeah. phenomenal header from Ruben Diaz to knock it mm. behind because yeah. that could have gone anywhere as well. Yeah, I always think that if a, if you think a goal is going in and it doesn't, and the keeper has had anything to do with that, then regardless of the actual kind of technicalities of the save, it still goes down as a as a pretty good one in my book. And speaking of goalkeepers, we'd be miss if we didn't give a shout out to Scott Carson, who we asked this question um, uh, in the preview podcast some weeks ago of would it be the longest gap between Champions League wins? And actually, no, he has tied with um, Paolo Maldini and Alessandro Costa-Curta of AC Milan, who... Both of them won the Champions League or the European Cup at the time in 1989 first and then in 2007 where Scott Carson won it in 2005 and in 2023 sitting on the exact same bench in the exact same stadium in the exact same city on each occasion. So what a life that man is having and we can only applaud and, uh, and be very jealous of that fact. And now we shall move on from... Oh, no, we won't. We'd be amiss if we didn't talk about Rodri, of course, because, you know, you, you you did say Saeed didn't have the best game, and as I said, he, didn't, he said so himself. But, Joe, to go from two years ago, the disappointment of not playing, be, his kind of absence being credited as the reason why City didn't defeat Chelsea and Porto, to then be the man to make the difference, it's some story, and, it, you know, it's a great goal, and he's been a, City, a massive player for City throughout for the last three or four years now and it feels almost fitting that a player of his kind of standing the team would get the you know a player who doesn't get many goals but my god he's got the most important one since maybe Sergio Aguero's way back in 2012 Oh definitely and I think there will be a debate of that will now go forward of which one of those two goals was, was the most important Oh Dickoff's is still up there Oh Dickoff's yeah I've I think with Rodri's goal, I've described it in so many different ways. It's It's been like a, a deft, placed shot, controlled, but also he absolutely thumped it into the back of the net mm-hmm. and he curled it round. He, he's done so many different techniques in, in one shot. It was emphatic and also so controlled. So it's, it's a very, just a, a very good goal and City really needed it at that time. And it, it would have been one of those chances where if he'd missed, City would be ruining that. At the end of mm. end of the game, just like into a probably ruin the uh, the Lukaku chance and and the one that hit the bar. So uh, no, I think Rodri is probably a fitting player to to score the winner in a Champions League final. He's he's been seven or eight out of ten in every single game, bar one or two, including this final. But over the season, he's been sensational and undroppable to the point where Calvin Phillips hasn't been allowed to to come in and, and learn his trade because Rodri's been so, so important for that team and he's uh, he's just the one that keeps City ticking and he's now come up with quite a few important goals. He's got this one, he's mm. got the, the equaliser against Villa on the final day, that one against Arsenal that was ultimately one of the dif- differences between winning and losing the title last season. The the curler against Bayern Munich, he, he doesn't score normal goals, does he? He doesn't just score... <laughs> ones that you forget about if he scores it's it's normally a big goal 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if any of you watched Soccer Aid on Sunday night, but there was quite skulls actually scored quite a similar goal <laughs> in that he kind of closed down on a loose ball and, and banged it into the bottom corner. But I must say, I think Andre Onana is a bit of a better goalkeeper than Leon Edwards, that must be said. You know, Sai, it, it almost felt like it was the the one bit of quality City really had throughout the whole match and they, they were able to capitalise on it. The pass from Akanji to Bernardo was brilliant and then his cutback. It was Bernardo, wasn't it? I believe yeah, um, his yeah. cut back and then the shot. It was like just and it was almost fitting again. There, it was such a typical goal of getting to the byline, pulling it back, and then usually it's a tap in, but this time it was a a finish fitting of the occasion. It it was fitting in that it was, yeah, like you say, a kind of signature move from Guardiola over the years. It was also fitting that it was a second ball that you know Bernardo's cross got cut out who's on the second ball, it's Rodri. You know, when Guardiola came to England and won his first 10 matches and everything looked rosy, things started to fall apart and they got battered at Leicester and he got asked what, he didn't tackle anyone. He said, what is tackles? And everyone thought he was a buffoon who'd never make it in England. And, um, you know, he, he didn't care about tackles, but what he did care about, what he had underestimated was the importance of second balls in English football. And ever since then, City have worked tirelessly to get the second balls. You know, how did they score against United in 12 seconds in the FA Cup final? Second balls. So, you know, that is... It is quality players taking their moments, but it is also years and years on the training ground um, all paying off in the best way possible. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave part one for a close there. And we'll be back in just a moment to discuss, of course, the treble of all things. So don't go anywhere. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello there, everybody, and welcome back to the Talking City podcast, where we now, of course, have to talk about the treble, the Premier League, the FA Cup, the Champions League, all won by City in a single season, only the second English team to do so, equaling their neighbours, Manchester United's um, equally great achievement in 1999. Um, There's only a handful of English teams to have, uh, sorry, a handful of European teams to have accomplished it, Joe, and how do you put the magnitude of this kind of into any sort of perspective, you know, for it to not have been done for 24 years in English football just shows how remarkably difficult it is to do. It's strange, isn't it? Because there's been so much focus on winning the Champions League and, and Guardiola said it last week that winning the Champions League is more important than winning the treble. Mm. And I think fans are sort of thinking, oh my God, we've won the European Cup and then suddenly they're like, hang on, we've won the treble as well. And uh, I, I think last for? week... Last week, there was maybe a bit of subdued celebrations against United because they knew there was another final to come. And, uh, you know, if, if City had lost in Istanbul, yes, you've done very, very well to win the treble, but there's still that sort of negative end to the season. And I think that the celebrations are, are just relief and just City and their fans have worked towards this for for so long. So to win the Champions League and win the treble in the same season, that you know, they're, they're on par with any 
club side that have played in in England and, and Europe now, and and that's that's what they've needed. And uh, no, I, I think it's they are one of the best teams to ever play football. I, I would argue that City have been better under Guardiola, but they've got everything this season. They've got that defense. They've got that. Um, the sort of game management and the, the streetwise way of seeing out games and that's what's been the difference this year. And they've used that experience to their advantage and this team is a result of a lot of work and chopping and changing over the last few seasons to get to this point where City are ready and Guardiola said it's it was written in the stars. It has felt that way in the last few weeks when they beat Bayern, when they beat Real Madrid, the way they beat United in the final. It, it's felt like City were always going to win that and apart from maybe an hour before Rodri scored, it, it was it was going to be City's uh, City's title. So uh, yeah, we're going down to the trophy, uh, the parade later, and it'll be uh, it'll be some scenes, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, sorry, we were kind of talking about this on Saturday, and we had a bit of a disagreement. I wrote something basically saying City, just with their trajectory, were all and how great they are, were always inevitably one day going to win the Champions League. But you disagreed with that. Um, kind of saying, you know, look at how how they've conspired to throw it away so many times in the in the past, even before even before Guardiola was in charge. So, you know, did it ever feel this was obviously City's kind of white whale, the the one they always wanted to win, and you know, kind of disregarding the trouble itself just for a second. How how massive is it for City to finally get this, you know, the elusive trophy, the elusive trophy they've wanted for so long? Yeah, it's enormous, and you know, as Guardiola said after the match, they easily could have lost that game. Yeah. And that is the answer to anyone who says it was inevitable that they'd win the Champions League. Is is I find it reductive when anyone mm. says it was inevitable. Because unless you know, if I'm saying, oh right, well, Man City will win the Champions League in the next in the next hundred years, <laughs> then, you know, I'll be dead by the time <laughs> anyone works it out. But I, I don't think anyone was saying at the start of the season, maybe they can point out the articles or the clips or whatever, Man City going to win the treble. Um, I remember doing a broadcast interview for a major network in January when City had just lost the derby and I was asked if United were going to the quadruple. Um, <laughs> so, you know, clearly that was a more sensible question at the time than are City going to do the treble. You know, are, are Chelsea going to... Is it inevitable that Chelsea will win the Champions League now they've spent £600 million in a year? Uh, Don't think so. But, well, but by the same... By the argument of the people who say it was inevitable that City's mm-hmm. success would... Um, City's money would, would lead to that. You would have to say so. And yet no one is looking at Chelsea and saying... Mm. Um, however, I bet the same people who are saying it's inevitable that City would win, should Chelsea win in the next few years, those same people will say it was inevitable that Chelsea would win. But they're not mm-hmm. saying that now, which is, it's very easy to say things in hindsight, isn't it? Of course, of um, course. So Although that, in City's yeah. case, I'd kind of argue, not not just the money thing, as we're kind of touching later, but more just the setup, how, how, how they are clearly a better run club than Chelsea. Regardless of how much money they spend on players, it's more the infrastructure they set up. Um, Guardiola being the best manager in the world, he might well have not won it. It was his first Champions League since 2011. But it yeah, it always felt like... He, they, you know what I mean? That they would, they, surely, how could they not win it at some point? But again, as you say... I know, but, but that's it's football, so hard. That's, it? that's the thing. It's so hard. You know, One-off games. You know, an Edison shin away from not winning it. Yeah. Um, 
or or maybe not winning it. So the, there's so much jeopardy in football, and that's why people watch football because if it was decided at the start of every season who would win things by who had the most money or who would who was the best run club, it'd be really boring, um, mm-hmm. and and football wouldn't have the audience the audience it does have. Um, so you know, I, I, it kind of takes away from City's success to say, oh, it was always going to happen because mm. there are so many things that could have happened and and also kind of with the the treble like you know it it is the the best season an english team has had along with united in 99 i'm sure loads of people will debate whose was better but i pointless you know celebrate them both because it's a yeah. phenomenal achievement Exactly, and it's insane to think that only a, a Nathan Jones Southampton team prevented perhaps a quadruple, which would have made it the best, the best um, kind of accomplishment in a single season. But you know, how uh, the kind of the question I put to Joe: How do you put like this achievement into kind of perspective for City? It's so huge and a rarity, especially you know in English football, as we say. So, sorry, say that again. <laughs> How do you kind of put that achievement City have done into any sort of perspective? Because it's just you know such a rarity and such a massive thing to do. Well, I think it has to be up there at the top with with United's treble. I think it beats City's hundred point season. I think it beats Arsenal's invincible season. I think it beats any any other kind of um, you know major achievement. There is the the big caveat that is the the Premier League charges. Um, mm-hmm. That will affect some people's perception of City's success mm-hmm. now, and Which we'll get will to. will absolutely affect the perception if City are found guilty. Um, but for now, I think you've got to call it as as it is. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, another you know, as well as City's legacy, Joe, it's also massive for Guardiola's legacy. He was kind of quite candid after the game, saying, you know, maybe he was doing it in a jokey fashion, but you could kind of see the relief there as well. Or you know, no one can call him a Fraudiola anymore for uh, not winning the Champions League with City or not being able to do it since since he had Messi. And But in the same breath, he's, you know, I think it was it before the game, he said, oh, I'm so successful because I have Messi and now I have Haaland. But at the end of the day, I don't, I don't think City, regardless of how many amazing players they have, do this you know, without Guardiola. He's a genius. He's affected football from, oh, you know, over the last, what is it, 15 years now? He's affected football from the very top all the way to... School, kids playing in schools and and play, and lads playing in parks or lads and ladies playing in parks across the world. Every team, pretty much everywhere now, passes from the back, and that's his legacy. And to get this, you know, the only the second manager I believe to win a European treble, a remarkable manager, probably the certainly the best in the business at the moment, probably arguably the best of all time. And you know, what a way to kind of secure his legacy. Not like I think any of us here would ever question his legacy, regardless of what City had won this season. But to those kind of few doubters who are still out there, I think it shuts them up quite considerably. But probably not knowing the internet and knowing knowing people. This is it. It's it's it, he would have been remembered as a sensational manager who's done game changing things without City winning the Champions League but there would always have been a but he never won the Champions League on every sort of article or podcast or comment about about Guardiola at City now he's done it it's it's sort of a validation of everything that City have done over the last 10-15 years everything Guardiola's worked for and 
it's, it's a little bit it's, this isn't my point by any stretch I've, I've seen it a few times on on social media but it's, it's a little bit like Messi winning the World Cup everyone knew he was the best everyone knew, knew City are the best everyone knew Guardiola was the best but now they've got that trophy then uh, it's it's something that just silences all the doubters now and uh, I think what it's telling about Guardiola is that he wants more he said we'll come back we'll start at zero and we'll go for more as you say the they could have won the, the Carabao Cup this year. They've got the chance to win the Super Cup, the the Club World Cup, which they're weirdly qualified for 2023 and 2025 now. So they've got two chances to become uh, champions of the world. And, and that will be another way that, I mean, whatever you think of those competitions, that City fans and City's hierarchy can say, look what we've done. We've we've literally used everything we've got and we are the best in the world or the best in Europe. And for now, they are undoubtedly the best in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. As kind of Joe touched on their side, Guardiola wants more. Um, he has said he's going to stay, and it's expected he'll stay for like the remainder of his contract. But is you know amid, amid all the euphoria um celebrations, is there not that brief worry of how what does City do when he's gone? I think there was a there was an inkling after twenty twenty one that he might leave. Had City won the Champions League back then, his kind of job done. So is it is it? A bit strange that he's staying now after doing even more than than he would have done in 2021. Or what do you think? Do you think he's just you know he's got the perfect setup there? He loves he clearly loves his team and his players. And why why wouldn't you stay? To as Joe said, to go and conquer all those other competitions. I mean, first and foremost, he will stay till 2025 because he's an mm. honourable man who honours his contracts um, and respects the working um, environment he's got. His first thanks. After he won the final in the in the press conference were for Inter, and his second thanks were for um, Fran Soriano and and Caldun Al Mubarak for giving for not sacking him basically for not winning the Champions League. So you know he respects that environment. Um, it would be so tempting for Guardiola and for all of the players to say, "How do I top that?" Almost certainly, some of them will never top that in football. Most of them won't because. It's a treble. Um, what is the motivation to turn up for work and try and do it all again? Um, and you would say, what is the motivation for coming back after a 100-point season? What is the yep. motivation for coming back after winning the league twice? What is the motivation for winning after winning the league three times in a row? And Guardiola and all of his players um, share that mentality that um, only the very best of the best have. Where they just want to win again and again to and again. again. You know, I think Guardiola was asked a few months ago if he was bored of winning, and it was just like bemusement across his face that <laughs> at the idea that he could. And 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 I think as well, you know, I keep saying you know, don't I? Really dreadful. I blame tiredness. Um, <laughs> I think there was kind of an expectation. I mean, Guardiola never expected to stay this long. Mm. It was always kind of expected that. He would maybe sign a one contract extension, but um, his, his reign at City would not be this long. And, and he always kind of looked at managers like Roy Hodgson managing in the 70s and things like that and thought, oh my God, I want to be on a golf course. Um, and that may still be, but at the same time, he's never kind of looked more relaxed and happier and more kind of bullish about his future than he has this season and in these last weeks and you know his most recent kind of iteration of I will stay came up completely unprompted really when he, he said I'll stay for as long as the the club are, are under these Premier League charges I'll be here and he, he said when they first came out I'll 
I'll go down to League Two with the club and and uh, stay with them if need be. So he's a loyal guy, but he's also got this uh, relentless kind of ambition. He can never be satisfied at winning. Mm. He always wants the next one, and so do the players. So that's why it will be horrendous for whoever replaces him, and it will be horrendous for the club trying to replace him because you can't. But enjoy him while he's here and he's here for at least another two years absolutely absolutely I mean I think you know the motivation is to feel like that again isn't it to have those wins to have that euphoric high I mean I think Haaland said not not well not an hour after the, tr- the trophy lifter with BT Sports saying that when this settles I'll just know I want to do this again and the smile the, the, the terrifying smile crept over his face that every manager of every other Premier League team well every other team in Europe must have been quaking in the boots you know you know Joe we haven't we haven't kind of spoke much about Haaland because maybe it's a topic for the summer where he's not scored much in the these last few games but there's there's no need for such negativity right now but you know that was some some ominous ominous warning for those for those watching, and, and I've just had a little look at what United did the year after their trouble, and United actually won the won the league and didn't come close in the other cup tournaments, but still managed still managed to win the Premier League. So there's no kind of precedent or anything like that for falling away, and you just feel like this is City are only gonna get stronger. We don't know what's gonna happen in the summer. There might be some um, high profile departures and more chopping and changing needed, but it just feels like you know Haaland's 22, Alvarez is 23, 24, Foden's 22. It doesn't feel like Ruben Diaz is still only twenty six for God's sake. It doesn't feel like anything's going to be a. It doesn't feel like see you're going to be knocking off their perch anytime soon. That's for sure. The the ominous thing that I got was not after the game. It was before the game when De Bruyne referred to it as this would be our first, as in we're going to go and get more. Like as soon as we unlock this, then we want to go and get more. And uh, I mean especially De Bruyne will because he had rotten luck in in finals now. But um, no, I think the fact that Harlan said it, I think. Rodri might have said it and uh, Guardiola as well obviously like attention is turning now they'll celebrate and they clearly are doing and take it, making the most of that but they will then come back and, and look at how we do it and Guardiola was saying at the beginning of this season how do you motivate, motivate players to come back for a third league title in a row they, they found a way to do it, it wasn't always easy it was quite rocky for a good six months of the season but they did it and they finally you know, got into that rhythm in 2023 and you you expect that this is a team now and who know know how to win. They've they've got that off the back now the Champions League and they will want to show that it's not just a flash in the pan and they're not just a one a one year Champions League winner. They they'll want to go and create a dynasty as they have done in the Premier League in in Europe. And you, you can see how it's going to happen as well. If you're looking at the way that they finish this season, you've got John Stones in midfield. Phil Foden's played his last few games in centre midfield and looked very good. He looks like he's finally going to get trusted there. You've not got any out-and-out fullbacks apart from Kyle Walker, so is it going to be a season where we we sort of see this sort of three-two, three-one formation? If, if if I've got that right, um, it's it's going to be really. There's basically there's there's a lot of a lot of shoots in this season that you can see growing into something bigger. Haaland's overall play coming deep has developed over the season. He's not scored. He scored one in eight to end the season. But I don't think his, his level of performance has dropped. He's always been there and he's becoming more involved. And it's just that Gundogan or Rodri or or someone else has, has come up and, and taken the sort of the mantle off him of, of scoring those goals and Haaland's got them there. So there's there's clearly room for Haaland to improve, that the team can improve around him. That that 
experiment with defenders moving into midfield, John Stones. It it's not like there's you know an, an end to this story as as I think the commentator suggested on on BT Sport. There's this team can continue evolving and continue you know beating teams in the Premier League and, and in Europe. Yeah, there's plenty more success to come, that's for sure. But we'll bring part two of the podcast to a close there. We'll be back in just a moment to talk about a couple of the unsavoury bits on an otherwise fantastic night for City. Don't go anywhere. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Talking City podcast. Though I asked you not to go anywhere, Joe has had to go somewhere. He's heading off to City Celebratory Parade, so he'll be getting involved in all the uh, in all the party and having and celebrations, no doubt. And we'll, of course, have coverage of that on ManchesterEveningNews.co.uk, even though it probably has already happened by the time you're listening to this. But Simon is still with me. Si, despite, you know, it was a great end for City, euphoric night, uh, you know, a night that will live on memory eternal, but it was by far not the best night for those travelling City fans in terms of actually getting to and from the Ataturk Stadium on the outskirts of Istanbul. We've had was having reports, live tweets in as the game was kind of the build up to the game and afterwards and more reports have kind of come out and testimonies have come out in the aftermath. There was kind of details of the kind of terrible organisation around the event this just a year on from the kind of the near disaster we saw in Paris during last year's final between Liverpool and Real Madrid, which of course ended up with the fans who attended that getting reimbursed. Um, there was kind of gridlock traffic, the fans on buses for two hours or more without water or toilets, a lack of toilet facilities um, around the stadium in the fan park. Um, hardly any concessions stands for the 20,000 people in the stadium. I believe it was the Independent that reported there was um, two concessions with six on each and only four working card machines at an event sponsored by MasterCard. And, and then there were similar troubles in for fans getting home from the ground afterwards due to gridlock traffic. Um, you know, we've seen all seen the images and videos of fans, some even um, in wheelchairs having to walk along a, a packed motorway and others have reported having to kind of climb over wasteland and walls and open sewers to get to the ground. It's some pilgrimage, it's some trek and I'm very glad I'm not a City fan and had to experience that even if it did end all well. Um, it's, 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 it seems absolutely mad. You were there of course and, and I remember if I do recall correctly there were similar stories of this happening in 2005 when Liverpool played there. So the fact that this stadium which clearly doesn't seem fit for purpose, got the, such a massive event. And let's not forget, this is came two years. It was originally meant to be happened in the 2020 final, wasn't it? It got postponed twice due to COVID. So it's not like this has been sprung upon them that they haven't had time to prepare the ground um, properly for having so many people go. And it's just, you know, Istanbul, from your from from what I've heard from you and what I've seen from a lot of the City fans loving it over there, seems like an absolutely amazing city. I'd love to go. But it doesn't seem like a great place for the event. You were there, of course. What was you, you know, kind of paint a picture for us? What was it? What was it like yourself getting there? And from yeah, I mean, from fans? I, I was, uh, you know, looking from my ivory tower in the press box. Hmm. But um, no, I mean, firstly, Istanbul is a fantastic city. Hmm. It, Looks it. It's brilliant, and you can have a great time there without kind of leaving one street. But but at the same time, you could never cover every street because it's so big. You know, I was on like one half of the city that is um, split in two by the river, 
Never mm. saw the river. Never saw the other <laughs> part of the city. Still saw some fantastic and amazing things. Um, it was which suggested that I was on the right side to be. But <laughs> there's um, was that Europe fantastic. side or Asia side? I, I was on the Asian side. Yeah, okay. I, we were we were close to the um, the square that had been designated for Inter fans, but there were so many City fans staying around there. Um, it was just kind of you couldn't you you couldn't walk out your hotel door without hearing someone singing John Stones, basically. Um, loads going on. The stadium is a fantastic stadium. Certainly fit for purpose. It 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 looks great. Um, it's you know similar to lots of other. Um, stadiums in terms of kind of working environment and and everything like that it's just how to get there and how to get out of there um istanbul is a chaotic city at the best of times and takes ages to get from one place to another um and there needed to be a better way to get everyone um from one end to the other you know, it's kind of busy at the best times without adding another 100,000 people all going to and from the same place. And, you know, in terms of the journalists who were working there, I know there were three of us who all set off at slightly similar times. And it took me uh, an hour to get there. It took someone else two hours to get there. It took someone else three hours to get there. So you just you couldn't plan for how long it would take you, and and there were plenty of city fans who kind of arrived early and in good time to the fan park, and and there were buses constantly coming into the fan park, but it just took so long, and there was a shortage of buses, and and you don't want to be on a bus for two three hours. Um, it it was just the the infrastructure wasn't there when it should have been, and the organisation wasn't there because if you know. Keep saying, you know, fans should have been more at the forefront of of the picture. And if you if if I looked, if I turned out of the press box and went down a set of steps, I could see the care that was being given to uh, President Erdogan's car as he sat there, as as he was inside the stadium. His car was being cleaned non-stop so that it was at its shiniest for when he was ready to uh, to leave. And I think if if any of that efforts had been put into uh, looking after the fans better it would have been a a bigger story i think well city put on uh, a day trip for supporters that flew them in on the day and then got them out in the early hours after the game they had to um delay the the departure of the flight going back i think because the bus getting to the airport we we were waiting for taxis at um half two three in the morning and there were loads around the stadium but you'd order one uh, on like official apps and they would message and say, uh, and you would order one on official apps with a price, say, that was maybe like 15 quid. And they'd message before they arrived and said 300 euros. And you'd then message... <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> and you'd then message the next one and they'd say 150 and you'd say no and they'd say 120. You know, it was constantly... And What'd you get it for? Um, I think we got it for fifty in the end. Oh, which, lovely work! Which is is good for what was a forty five minute journey with no traffic. Because mm. again, the stadium miles out. It doesn't matter where you were in Istanbul. The stadium was 
at least half an hour from you. Um, and especially if you're in the centre, it was 45 minutes an hour. So, so that is another kind of logistical problem, especially in a city that has lots and lots of, of stadia. Um, but, you know, it's not, what, it's not what fans deserve to be desperately trying to haggle for, for taxis. Um, didn't, it didn't seem that kind of accessible um, for a lot of people. And, and also, it just wasn't what was advertised. City fans were told they'd leave, there'd be loads of buses to take them back, and there weren't. Uh, and that ultimately falls on, on UEFA. Um, mm. Because the, there were plenty of great things about, about the trip. And I know so many fans who had the time of their lives out there. Um, but things should have been better from UEFA and, and there's no question that it did take away from some people's experience of it. I, I think it's like kind of a concerning thing because I think if you look at UEFA's last three big finals now, the last two Champions League finals and of course the final of Euro 2020 which was obviously in the summer of 2021, all three of you know, equally different kind of scenarios for all of them but all of them have had verged on the kind of precipice of disaster and I think many could argue that the the England the Italy final was a disaster of some proportions and but I think they're very lucky in each case that no one was seriously 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 hurt or even kind of killed in the case of um, last year's in Paris it seems like I don't know what's kind of happened obviously but it seems like that their ability to host these massive events has really struggled in the last few years and I know I as a Bolton fan, I am in no danger of ever going to a Champions League final, so that's not much to worry about in that respect. But if I was a fan of of City, of Liverpool, of you know any team, I'd honestly, you'd want to go no matter what. You'd pay over hell and high water to get there. You'd pay whatever it took. You'd you you would crawl through you know open sewers and over over wastelands to get there because it's going to be the best moment of your life potentially. But I'd be if I was in that scenario, I'd be looking at like, is it really worth it? The amount of money you spend to then be treated like cattle at best and pieces of uh, excrement on the floor at worst. It's, it's honestly baffling to me. As I was seeing those scenes unfold, only on Twitter, of course, I wasn't there. I was just perplexed and quite, I wouldn't say upset, but, you know, kind of like, it just, the, point, the, the fact that someone's amazing day could have been ruined by such a, almost kind of traumatic experience it's, it's honestly quite sad for me and I think someone pointed out it might have been Miguel Delaney the fact that it didn't kick off in such between any fans and there was no trouble whatsoever it seems in such a high stressful and hot and stuffy environment is testament to the kind of the behaviour of both sets of supporters which they should be absolutely praised to high hilt for yeah I think so um, well they definitely should be I, I, I would say that as much it was horrible getting to the ground. It was horrible for anyone getting to the ground for all the, the reasons described above. Um, however, with an hour to go um, before kickoff, I think 19,200 of the 20,000 City fans were in their seats and Inter had filled up before City. So for all the problems, there was never kind of any danger of like fans missing kickoff or mm-hmm. or anything like that. So so in that respect, the plan worked. But there has to be a better way of organising than saying get on a bus that will get you there nine hours before the game. And there also that doesn't work when for for twenty thousand people. There has to be sort of some kind of organisation and, and staggering. Um, and also, yeah, maybe 
even just like a shuttle that is separate to uh, to the traffic kind of kind of yeah. thing in the way that the city bus was shepherded into the stadium um maybe just a special route for for the day for people going a special lane even carpool champions league carpool lane for um for fans fans going there i mean it wouldn't have been respected because i was in taxis that ignored police cars with their sirens on uh, <laughs> so it, it was <laughs> it, it was just that kind of place good luck telling everyone to to respect the rules of the road but yeah UEFA picked a fantastic city and you know having been to nothing against Germany but going to Dortmund and Leipzig and Munich um, and the sort of danger with the teams that get to the latter stage of the Champions League is that it's all very England, Spain, Germany and you know next year's final Wembley mm-hmm. is that one to get excited Munich the about? year after I believe as well right yeah it's um, uh, you, the, the UEFA president has made sort of a thing uh, maybe he's not doing it that successfully, but but wanting to take football to these showpiece events to countries that you know probably wouldn't have them otherwise, because no Turkish teams get into the the Champions League final anytime soon. Um, but knowing what they did, no, knowing what they knew about the place, um, it, it sh- just should have been better organised. And thankfully, there won't be any sort of repercussions or lessons to learn in the way that there were for Paris but you would mm-hmm. like to think that there will still be reports and reviews done on how they can make things better for for next year because they definitely can mm-hmm. yeah, and we can only hope that you know the win soothed any uh any discomfort elsewhere for those city fans uh we can hope at least but you know, moving on you know you touched on it a bit earlier on but as you kind of mentioned there is the case of the 115 Premier League charges still kind of hanging over City um, and we, you know, we've discussed this and had disagreements over it and where do City stand with it? What's happening? Where do where where where, where do we stand with the charges at present and does this kind of detract from the achievement? Because of course you're getting you're getting people in, on the internet and fans you know I, I, I always hasten to say the word fans because it's usually you know football picked Twitter trolls and whatnot. But you know the feeling is prevalent amongst supporters of a lot of clubs. You'd probably say of like it doesn't count inverted commas for those listening. Inverted commas. This is not me saying this. You know it doesn't mean for everything. It's cheating, etc. So and it's, yeah, it's not just fans. I've seen this. It's a, it's an opinion I've I've seen held by um, certain journalists and whatnot. And you know I disagree on that front. I don't think there's anything that could ever. You know I don't think any supporter in that stadium or watching around the world was that bothered in that moment. It's the best moment of their lives and. They'll, that'll never be taken away and you know the, I don't think you can look at the crying Jack Grealish or the kind of emotional Kyle Walker the celebrating you know crying Erlen Haaland Guardiola you know I don't think you can look at any of that and ever begrudge those men some of the best footballers in the world such a moment of eternal bliss but you know these charges we do kind of have to mention them in, con- in conjunction with City's achievements of course the Premier League charges so maybe it should just be in conjunction with the Premier League title win, but uh, you know where 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 does it all stand at the moment? Because I think there's a lot of complaints over nothing being said from the Premier League. But as we said at the time, it's it's going to be a long old investigation or get to the end result of these charges, which City deny, yeah. of course. Well, I mean, it absolutely does apply to the Champions League because if well, City yes. are guilty of the the most severe Premier League charges, then that also applies to to UEFA if they if they've misrepresented the 
the finances to the Premier League, then they also have to have to UEFA. So it, it does apply to the Champions League. I think okay. it absolutely has to be um, mentioned in any kind of big discussion about where City mm-hmm. stand among the greatest teams. And I, I, I kind of think for, I, I would say objectively for journalists, but also any kind of rational person who wants to be taken seriously, there are two positions you can have. And one is that um, the the charges have to be taken seriously and if City are found guilty then it will um, place an asterisk against the success they've had mm-hmm. uh, over the last decade so innocent until proven guilty and I think the other position you can take is that because of the charges hanging over them they're kind of um, accused until or unless they are cleared um, the two positions that I've seen that I don't think are serious um, are one, they're innocent, whatever. And even if they're found guilty, the, their achievements still stand. Mm-hmm. And the other one, which I've seen far more of, is they're guilty, whatever. And even if they're found not guilty, it, their, their achievements will still be stained. You know, uh, uh, you saw a lot of it with Cass and people who choose not to believe what Cass have said can't be taken seriously because if, if you're not believing kind of the the court rulings, then you're essentially a conspiracy theorist. So mm-hmm. the, the same will, will go on. Um, but like you say, the problem is that um, it's not going to happen and we're not going to hear anything about it for a long, long time and it will go ahead in private until a few years time when when it's finally resolved and in that way there's no kind of good resolution to it because it'll mm-hmm. just sit there and people have already all made their own minds up anyway so there'll be very little change when a decision is finally made mm-hmm. um but what a decision won't change is what happens until then and until then like you say very real memories are being made and Jack Grealish and the whole City team and Pep Guardiola will never forget winning the Premier League and their first Champions League and the treble. And those City fans in Istanbul who have had, you know, a week that they will remember for for the rest of their lives. Um, even if, if City are found guilty of those charges, you'll never be able to take away those, those mm. memories from them, even if they all have to accept that the achievements of the team may be called into question. Um, you can't ask them to unlive the very real thing that that they've lived. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's a difficult thing to kind of talk about because it's such in flux. We don't know because things like this take so long. Yeah, you know, it's when, probably when, easier in a podcast than than hmm. the written word. Well, strangely when, enough, when were the UEFA charges first done? That was twenty twenty. Twenty. Yeah, yeah, and they didn't like get results. It felt like it was about four years between getting yes. results, but it was only about but, four months. So it was fe- it t- February to June. Right, okay. And I remember Valentine's Day, your, your yeah, lucky lady yeah. got a tree that night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when you got called back into the office to deal with that with me, that was not a fun night. But this sort of stuff takes time, and until then, we have no really firm foot in what to do. But I think it's still important to 
to mention it because you know you look at BT Sport, it never once was mentioned in over nearly six hours of coverage, I believe, maybe even for more than that. And yeah. it's I think it's it's important to put it into the context of what City done. Like this isn't to say City fans have any control of what City's owners may or may not have done, and that they aren't allowed to celebrate it because of course you. No, and, and and the same but for the it players. Needs to be mentioned. Like, yeah, exactly. No one's a, no one's asking Jack Grealish not to celebrate because mm. the hundred million paid to sign He's him may or may wrong. not. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah, um, you're talking about a lot of people all who are and and while we're at it, like it's it's been embarrassing to see sort of people. So oh, look at City not celebrating properly or That's the fans. Such a, yeah, uh, it's like just either just people. Who have no brain cells or either or acting in bad faith, but it's just yes. tiresome. But everyone I've seen and I know um, has had a hell of a time. And when these, you know, these charges will hang over them, and we have to talk about them at some points. And if you're talking about City in their place and their achievements, then they have to be discussed. But that kind of the the approach I've taken is that it doesn't the charges don't determine whether um, Bernardo Silva passes the ball to Rodri or not mm-hmm. um, and whether the fans and the players can can celebrate. So, I, I mean, I, I hope that people will accept and, and like the way that we, uh, we are going about it. But um, mm-hmm. it, it's, like I say, there's no kind of perfect position no, and I think I'd like to think we've done it quite fairly. Um, you know, and the only thing we can hope for is that they're resolved one way or the other as soon as possible, so we can kind of speak on some more firm footing. But it's going to be some time True, for that. But oh. what I would say as well, like I remember asking Pep at the time, and he was like, "Oh no, it takes as long as it wants." And then they won the Premier League, and everyone said, "Yeah, but what about these charges?" And he was mm. like, "No, it needs to be resolved now." No, like, yeah, I remember. As, as much as it would be, um, everyone wants them resolved as soon as possible. Like. It needs to be done properly, and mm-hmm. the accusations are so strong and so heavy that if City were to be found guilty, then it would be like chuck them out of the league. Um, mm. So you you can't you can't just can't rush the process. Mm-hmm. Like everyone needs to be given time to to get a fair defence together, and um, mm. and you know the, there's a contradiction in in what Guardiola said if you look at it one way, but if you look at it the other way, Guardiola's coming at it from not necessarily the position of the club, it's just his personal view. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we would all like it done quickly, but more than anything, we want it done properly mm. so that nobody can question the outcome uh, or the only people questioning the outcome are the conspiracy theorists mm-hmm. on either side. Absolutely. Well, to end, we have run quite long, but we've had a lot to talk about. So, Sai, quickly, you know, you went to a Champions League final very fortunate to do so, I'm sure you'd agree. Why don't you just give us a bit of what it was like to be there for for like for those like me and hope and maybe some people listening. I know of course mate of mine, but it was the first trophy lift he has ever missed as a city fan because he just couldn't get a flight cheap enough and had to sell his ticket. He was heartbroken to have done so, but you know, to be there on what was a special night, at, you know, whatever team would have been playing would have been a special night. What what was it like? Give us give us some details, some nice uplifting details to finish this little podcast yeah i i don't want to kind of discount any sections of the fan base at all and i i totally get that city are a a growing club um you know and we'll get more big around the world after this win but it was kind of refreshingly nice to 
see so many City fans there who have kind of clocked up the points and been supporting them for for so long and been down in the third division with them and you know not to like turn it into a a myth or anything but like everyone there has really experienced the lows of supporting City and and the lows of supporting City will still be higher than um other clubs um as as we both know but the the lows of supporting City will still be a lot lower than kind of other teams have have gone through um and 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 when i'm talking about living experiences it, it's those fans who have those memories in in their heads about what it was like to support them through through the thinnest of times um all it, anywhere you went it felt like before the days before the match it felt like city fans were just so happy and privileged to be there and they knew they were in a fantastic city and with the mates and that's what it's all about but they were it, it felt like everything was aligning for them um and like it kind of had to be that night but like saturday was the perfect time for them to do it because it yeah it it just felt as if they they'd seen everything that had gone before and and this was the time to sort of um step up and and sort of crown what has been a few years of success. I, I was on the plane home and uh, was chatting to two fans and, and one of them just said, you know, I, I can't believe it from Gillingham to this. And it, it is like that. Like, you, you cannot believe that your side has gone and won the Champions League. It is the dream of any any fan, really. Um, so... It's it, it was it was really really special, um, and loads of people had a had a special time out there. I know there were problems with with getting to and from the stadium, but um, it it was a real privilege to be there and to see the 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 scenes of of the supporters who just had such a joyful time. It was like the absolute best of football, really. Absolutely. Well, we'll bring on that lovely note. We'll bring this. Um, Chocker podcast to a close so I can finally get my fan back on because I'm sweltering here. <laughs> I can't lie. I cannot lie. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to listen to more, please go and get a little subscription. Hit that subscribe button. We'll be coming back regularly through the summer to, you know, we'll have to dig up some uh, some topics for the for the first few weeks. But I'm sure once the transfer window gets reeling and the preseason tour, when it all starts again, when the grind gets back going, we'll be here to cover it. Don't you worry about that. And of course, you can get, if you want to see this video, this, this my God, I'm fumbling at the, at the last. If you want to watch this podcast in living colour, of course, you can go over to our YouTube channel, manchestereveningnews.co.uk forward slash Manchester City where there's loads more great video content for you to enjoy including no doubt from wherever this goes out Monday's um, parade through the Manchester City Centre of the treble victory you can get us on Twitter at Man City MEN Facebook pages Facebook .com. I'm so hot. You know where it is. Just search it. ManchesterUniNews.co.uk forward slash Manchester City for all your news. Thanks a lot. See you later. Ta-ra. Bye. <laughs>